you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and canicurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Friday, February 18th, 2022. This is episode number 219. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, AKA Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 26,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you'd like to be an audience participant. That's one of the unique things about this show. Not only do we have a panel of expert correspondents, often we have someone in our audience that is intimately involved in the story. Otherwise, please subscribe and support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about new finds for backyard grows in, Cal- in a California city, Oregon wants more taxes, SB 1097 on labeling and advertisement, workplace drug testing, cannabis and exercise, possible justice for a cannabis lifer, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage if there's time. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Nicole is a veteran in the cannabis industry and is always ready to use her experience to guide others. That experience includes taking a felony for a vague and confusing law. During her brief incarceration, she earned the nickname Jail Google from fellow inmates. What's your headline today, Nicole? Good morning, everybody, and happy Fuck It Friday. My headline today comes out of Oregon, and it's from the Cannabis Business Times, where Oregon legislation proposes a cannabis sales tax hike, which as somebody who's worked in the Oregon market, I would first like to say this is absolutely insane. The Oregon cannabis market has cannibalized itself already, and the oversaturation of product has driven product down so far that farmers have been forced to sell product just so that they could pay their tax debts. This is not the place to add more taxes. Shame on you, Oregon legislators. But I digress. So Oregon City and counties can currently levy the maximum local cannabis sales tax of 3%. But after some municipalities lobbied for a higher sales tax, the state legislation is considering a bill that would allow local governments to raise the cannabis sales tax to 
10%. Senate Bill 1506, introduced in February by Senator Lynn Findley, who I personally already have a bad taste in my mouth for, a Republican, and Mark Owens received a public hearing for the Senate Committee on Finance, uh, uh, Committee of Finance, um, on February 7th. If ultimately passed, legislation would raise the total sales tax from cannabis from 20% to 27% when including the sales tax rate. The Oregon Retailers and Cannabis Association has come to a strong opposition of SB 1506, and the organization has sent an email to members on February 9th to urge them to contact their state leaders to express the concern about this legislation. The ORCA has submitted testimony in strong opposition of the bill, but we need as many of you as possible to contact your leaders and state government to make sure that they know this bill would be extremely harmful to Oregonians, the group wrote in this email. ORCA Executive Director Casey Huluan said SB 1506 is a, uh, retroactive and in 2021, the proposal and law, the, of lawmakers have carefully crafted the legislation so that it does not create a tax raise but rather gives local governments the option to increase the sales tax on cannabis. In Oregon, in order to pass new sales tax of any kind, you're required to have your bill pass with a three-fifths majority through legislation. Haluan told Cannabis Business Times that at the very high tax threshold and it's difficult to pass new tax typically. However, because this bill does not explicitly create or raise a new tax, it is not subject to a three-fifths majority requirement. And it's only subject to a simple majority requirement because it gives localities the option to raise their tax locally. It does not itself raise the tax. In 2020, election of Oregon voters approved Measure 10 or 110 to decriminalize the possession of personal amounts for all illicit drugs. And the initiative created drug addiction treatment centers and services that would be funded in part by cannabis tax revenue. The funding earmarked for these programs took tax uh, revenue away from Oregonian cities and counties, Lewin said, leaving many local governments with budget shortfalls. That created a backlash among people, especially in the eastern portion of the state, areas where the small towns are really doing quite well, bringing in lots of local revenue from the Idaho cannabis cannabis market, literally quoted in the fucking article, where people are driving across the county to buy cannabis uh, or in from our, Ontario. Um, so I just really definitely want to say that this is a big, big, bad situation for the state of Oregon. I would not approve a tax hike. Local municipalities will do it. Oregon has already completely cannibalized itself. Product is so cheap in Oregon. And I just can't imagine that uh, another tax hike would actually be a good move for the farmers and for the retailers and for the manufacturers of the state of Oregon. Um, also hidden within all of this would redirect uh, a bunch of these tax dollars to local law enforcement rather than to the the rehabilitation programs that they were already earmarked for. So I'm not surprised by this whatsoever. However, I say if you're in Oregon, please reach out to your local lawmakers and beg them to not pass this ordinance or this law. And I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Thank you, Nicole. Um, you know, it just makes me want to have the deep conversation about local control. That there, there's so much redundancy. Um, it seems really wasteful of tax dollars that we have to have um, you know, all of these officials in all of these little teeny cities that don't know what they're doing and it's so frustrating and, you know, would it be better to just consolidate uh, some local governments? I don't know. I'd like to have a really deep dive on that. What do you the think? The drumbeat of law and order claims in Oregon has been so loud lately. First, they're talking about how they're going to have sort of a military invention, uh, intervention, in the southern, uh, southwestern part of the state where there's all those illegal grows, supposedly. 
then they're talking about uh, a terrible problem with human trafficking and all the big stories there. So, gosh, it really seems like the police unions and the police are really reaching in. Plus, they want to change change the output of the taxes from from treatment to uh, more law enforcement. I mean, I don't know. It seems, seems pretty obvious to me. Elliot, I'd love to hear from you. What do you think about this local control issue? Is do you, do you think local control is a good thing? Look, I think local control, you know, they need to have some, right? Uh, so they can decide where they're going to put things, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm not as familiar with Oregon, so I won't bloviate on something I don't know. The big issue here in California on local control, and we'll get into it a little bit on my story, is, you know, the polling is at 70% favorability of cannabis. And for, you know, whatever reason, cities aren't acting. So local controls, its own thing is, is not the worst thing in the world, uh, especially in California, which is a very diverse state. However, um, you know, the problem is, uh, they're, they're not, uh, you know, basically, uh, moving on the will of their constituents. And that's where kind of local control, especially on cannabis breaks down because I think the leaders are not, uh, you know, really hanging out with the people. They're hanging out with the bougie, uh, Gucci donor class, and they don't want to be uh, looked down upon for allowing cannabis in their city. So I think that's where it really breaks down. I think this entire thing is just fucking bullshit. In my mind, Oregon has literally done every single thing wrong to shit the bed over and over again as far as the way that they're going to regulate this business all the way down to the way that they've decided to sell edibles, the way that they've shortchanged all of the potency on products, um, the way that they've taxed it. And the fact that this, there's no – they're not even a fucking sales tax in that state, but they're trying to hike the cannabis sales tax makes me just – furious. So I got some personal opinions about it, but I digress because I know we're at time and I definitely want to make sure we get to all of our speakers today. Um, up next, we have Miss Liz Rogan. Liz is a biodynamic biologist, botanist, and cannabis health liaison. She's our pinup girl and we absolutely love Liz here. What do you have for us today, Liz? Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Nicole. Happy Friday and thank you for joining us. My story today, uh, we're going back to Las Vegas. It's at a KSNV, KATV.com in Nevada. The headline reads, patrons accuse Las Vegas restaurant of drugging them with THC. The story today is a follow-up of my story yesterday about a Thai restaurant in Las Vegas that may have had a secret ingredient in the Penang curry. Was it a Super Bowl special ingredient or was someone trying to meddle? Secret of Siam, a popular Thai restaurant in Las Vegas, has been accused of serving food adulterated with cannabis to patrons last weekend. The Nevada Health Department and Las Vegas Metro Police Department have been investigating, and investigators have been seen carrying out evidence. The police presence around the building ceased, and they are currently closed, and they cannot get any comments from the owners. Looking closer into this story, we find there are certainly some people who were medicated. Samantha Diaz says she and her husband eat at the Secret of Siam frequently, and on February 5th, they dined with friends, ordered so much food that she took her entrees home with her. Two days later, when she ate the rest of her remaining Penang curry while virtually teaching on her computer, she said she was reading essays and her mouth got all dry. She said, I felt like I was melting into my chair. I got all disoriented and heavy, and I thought, what is happening here? She was concerned that she was having a stroke. She doesn't use cannabis, especially since she's a school teacher and cancer survivor still taking medication. She slept it off, but the next day on Nextdoor and Facebook, she saw multiple posts about uh, or public were recounting much of the same experience after eating at Secret of Siam. She said, um, I'm sorry, other 
post said, I'm lucky enough to have family nearby me, but after letting them know we are 100% dying, they rush over and take us to the ER, according to one Facebook user. So some pretty extreme accounts, um, people. The restaurant's Yelp page shows 12 reviews since February 12th discussing tainted food. The dates for the various instances go back as far as January 30th, but not all reviews were negative. Some did show support. The reviews claiming the food or drugged are unsubstantiated and patently false, wrote Yelp user Eva F. One person has lobbied the accusation baselessly at the restaurant, and some of their friends have posted fake reviews in support of that person. Diaz, along with many of the social media users, said they filed complaints with the Southern Nevada Health Department District and police reports with Las Vegas Metro PD. The Southern Health Nevada... Southern Nevada Health District confirmed they've received reports and have an ongoing investigation. And some comments um, on the social media post said they've taken their leftover meals to the police to be tested. Other local business owners said they eat there all the time and it's great. They like the family. It's apparently very popular. Local Asian American business owners are frustrated. They feel like they are potentially being targeted. And overall, it's not okay to drug people. This really does give cannabis a bad name. People should be able to choose if they want to use this or not. And this could definitely be criminal. Um, I'm curious to see how this plays out. This is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour with a last taste of Thai for our Friday. As somebody who was drugged by LiveWell um, at the Denver County Fair in 2016 when they accidentally released 300 chocolate bars um, out into the Denver County Fair's cannabis exhibit section to that were supposed to be non-medicated, um, I personally can say I would be fucking furious if it happened. It like ruined my whole day. I almost lost my job over it. It was like really fucked up. I ate three of the chocolate bars. I ate like 300 milligrams. Um, but Definitely in the conversation of all of these people that are coming forward um, saying that they felt like they were high, I can't imagine that somebody would have done it on purpose unless it was malicious from you know somebody in the company, um, not like something that like the restaurant would be like, oh, let me, let's just give everyone the secret sauce, right? I feel like it would be malicious and or um, a complete mistake, um, but you know, I'm, I'm biased. Such a weird story. We need Columbo on this. I mean, why? Why is this happening? You know, I mean, could they possibly and then try to blame this place? That was my other thought. I'm like, (laughs) oh, huh. I mean, I I don't think that they're making secret sauce, thinking that it's going to make their restaurant uh, more popular. That doesn't make sense. They're hiding it in the cilantro, Susan. Okay. They I know a lot of people, you know, are trying to have like infused dinners and that sort of thing. And that was another thing that kind of crossed my mind because all kinds of restaurants are willing to participate, um, not knowing, you know, that we're still not quite there yet to be able to do that. And a lot of restaurants I've worked with in over the years that have been like, yeah, have an infused dinner. And then after like one time, they're like, we can never do that again. Um, because, you know, the, the ABC, as far as their liquor licenses and all these different things, the health codes um, of bringing product from the outside and that sort of thing. Uh, but my other thought was that maybe this restaurant has somebody that was willing to participate in an infused dinner and something got left behind as an accident. That was my accidental thought. My malicious thought is like somebody was like, fuck this place. I hate my job. Put a bunch of shit in there. And then my other thought is that it was an accident. It was a, somebody failed a drug test and needed to have someone to blame. Or a competing restaurant that wants to put him out of business or a racist motherfucker. Um, we've got Jaja up from the audience. I'm not sure where we are at time, but um, love to hear from you, Jaja. Just real quick, I was just curious, like you said, it's a strange story, but why didn't they get any type of effect from the 
original food only from the leftovers days later? That's why it seems strange to me. Yeah, like, why weren't you high when you left the restaurant? Like, why did it take two <laughs> Well, the people were, to be clear, they were, there were, if you look at the comments, there were a lot of people. Some people said, oh, I went out to eat with my wife. And by the time I got home, I was high. It seemed like most of them had about a 30 minute onset time. The woman with the leftover, she couldn't eat her food uh, because she'd ordered so much. So she noticed it specifically that it was the leftovers. So that was kind of pointing out there was actually that food, not some other food. Wow. All right. Well, we're really sorry, Secret of Siam. Uh, that this is happening. I hope that this is something that gets worked out. And also, I hope you didn't actually purposely drug people. Um, I think we figured out what the secret is, Nicole. <laughs> I just wonder if this will be something that will be like criminal, you know? I mean, to really look at, at what, if that could happen. Well, didn't get they in have, trouble they, and they, did, they drug Yeah, they'd have to prove in criminal intent. Denver. Yeah, oh, but okay. don't don't dose people without their knowledge. That's, it's I'm, not cool. Hundred percent. I eat edibles all the time, and I still was not okay with it. All right. Um, and up next, we have Mr. Jason Beck. Jason's the longest running retailer in cannabis history. He's also our very own industry's Kaiser Soze. What do you have for us today, Jason? Oh, good morning, Nicole. Today, my headline is specifically tailored for you because I know this is going to blow your fucking mind. Where California Senate Bill 1097, introduced by Senator Richard Pan, and that's Senate District 6 in California for everyone that wants to call his office today because this is about the dumbest, grossest overreach of government that I've seen in a while, maybe since yesterday. In a gross overreach of overregulation, this bill, it ends to change the labeling requirements again. Here is a text excerpt from the bill's language. And in, and in addition to the currently prescribed warnings would require cannabis or a cannabis product other than those for topical use to include a warning label that covers at least one third of the front or principal face of a product is in 12 point type, is bright yellow, and includes a pictorial or graphic element as specified and one of a series of warnings. The bill would require the licensee to use a mandated rotating warnings approach where batches of products are equally divided between the prescribed messages. The bill would require the department in, in consolation with the State Department of Public Health and the University of California, San Francisco Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education to either rectify the warnings or provide updating warning label language and designs every five years commencing on January 1st, 2030. Well, let me tell you something. Our warning and packaging requirements are already too strenuous, and there's no other industry that, that faces the type of labeling requirements that we are forced to uphold and keep in compliance for the state. This is just total bullshit. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I know we've talked about this before, and I can't remember what the answer was, though. Um, why can't we just do a QR code that'll direct people to all of the warnings and all of the information instead of cluttering up the, the labels? You can't assume that people would have the ability to do that, and you have to make them completely available without a second step. And one of the other things is that it actually is supposed to give somebody the thought process before they consume. So you'd have to actually go out of your way to do that. So there's ways that you can do that in regards to like tracking and stuff that I think would absolutely make sense to see the seed to sale. But the requirements and the reason why that they put it on there is so that you could have the disclaimer prior 
prior to making any next step. Okay. Um, by the way, my, my PTR picture is our QR code to our podcast, in case you were wondering. Uh, Jason, you broke up a little bit at the beginning of what you were saying. So if you could just summarize your thoughts on, on wh- what this bill is and, and what why you hate it. I was just saying it's a gross overreach attempt of overregulation, and this bill ends to change the labeling requirements again. And I'm just not for that. We keep on going back and forth with all these labor requirements. Nothing is nothing has changed as far as uh, public perception or a public threat due to the labeling standards. And so to me, there's no reason to change it. This is just a gross overreach of government charging the industry more money that's only going to go fall on the backs of patients. Have you seen the new uh, 65 warnings? Jason, have you seen them? Um, are you talking about the ones that they sent around in the email? The Prop 65 warnings? Yeah, yeah the new ones? Yeah. It's like a fucking paragraph. Yeah. It's, it's a and there, there's a whole other component of this bill, too, that says that the state wants you to make a leaflet, or maybe the state is going to make a leaflet. That's yet to be determined as where I saw the funding coming from in the bill, that you would also have to hand out to all of your customers and even on deliveries, hand out to all of your customers uh, basically a warning pamphlet of uses of cannabis is just totally fucking ridiculous. As we are planning a sustainability conference, you know, come on. I know. Where, no where's pollution. all the environmentalists at on this? I mean, come on, guys. We, uh, for a change, Jason, I totally agree with you. What? I agree that. The, yeah. How's that for crazy ass shit? I agree with Jason. This is a complete overreach. All these labeling requirements are bullshit. The fact that the plant has is basically generally recognized as safe, which the definition is it's never... Never killed anyone, ever. All right. Well, thank you so much for that headline, Jason, and everyone for your opinions on that. And yeah, never killed anyone ever. Falling out of bed has killed more people than cannabis. Um, And up next, we have Miss Gretchen Gailey. Gretchen is a Washington insider and the founder of Panoptic Strategies. What do you have for us today, Gretchen? Uh, Good afternoon, Nicole. Uh, To round out the week, let's do a little safe banking. Marijuana moment. The headline, Congressional Committee Discusses Challenges Marijuana Businesses Face in Economic Recovery from COVID. A Congressional Committee held a hearing yesterday to address the unique financial challenges that small and minority-owned businesses face as the economy recovers from the COVID pandemic, with a particular focus on how those struggles have played out in the marijuana industry under a federal prohibition. The House Financial Services uh, Subcommittee on Consumer Protection and Financial Institutions, chaired by Representative Ed Perlmutter, heard testimony from the Minority Cannabis Business Association on the economic barriers federal policy has created within the burgeoning market. Uh, He said states and territories continue to legalize medical and adult use cannabis. Mississippi just passed legislation establishing a medical cannabis program this month, yet we will not have even resolved the conflict between federal and state banking laws. Not only must these businesses contend with the ongoing pandemic and other economic uncertainties without being eligible for any federal SBA aid, but they do so while being shut out of the banking system. A public safety threat is forcing this industry to do business in all cash and is turning into a public safety nightmare. A potential solution to at least some of these challenges could be the passage of the Safe Banking Act, which would protect financial institutions that work with the legal cannabis businesses. Piece of legislation recently cleared the House for a sixth time, but it's continued to face resistance in the Senate under both Democratic and GOP control. Senate leadership has argued that comprehensive legalization must be enacted first, though Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has signaled that he'd be open to advancing safe banking if certain amendments were made. It's possible the discussion at the hearing could help to inform those changes. 
Perlmutter began his questioning by addressing MCBA Executive Director Amber Littlejohn. He asked her to describe how the industry's lack of access to traditional lines of credit and investment opportunities has contributed to small cannabis businesses, quote, being pushed into predatory loans and business arrangements. She said, with federal law limiting access to traditional funding, many cannabis businesses are initially funded through friends and family and personal wealth. And given the wealth disparities, especially among those most impacted by cannabis prohibition and the war on drugs, this is not an option. Large operators have no issue accessing capital. Representative Ayanna Presley uh, also addressed the issue at the hearing, noting that the industry's specific exclusion from federal relief during the COVID pandemic, quote, added insult to injury for small and minority-owned businesses. She said ensuring black and brown folks can start and sustain cannabis businesses is a matter of economic and racial justice. There are many attempts to keep those that were disproportionately locked up because of this failed war on drugs to keep them locked out from the multi-billion dollar industry. This need has become even more evident when compounded by the disparate impact COVID has had on communities of color and minority-owned businesses. Presley asked Little John how the pandemic has exasperated current racial inequities within the cannabis industry and why it's important to be intentional in ensuring that minority and women-owned cannabis businesses are not left behind in our recovery efforts. Little John said that many people agree that ensuring that the people who've been most harmed by cannabis prohibition are participating in an important part of legalization, but the way the state laws are created right now, they are dealing with almost insurmountable barriers to entry and the challenge of competing when markets are captured by a handful of individuals. It is really a dire situation, and if we don't get the resources now, many minority businesses are just not going to make it to legalization. They won't make it till the end of the year, and as I mentioned earlier, there are some, unfortunately, that will not make it to the end of this week. I, I say that, you know, this hearing is a great necessary first step um, in helping with uh, dealing with minorities and finding them a pathway to greater access to capital and uh, financial services in the industry. I see this definitely as a way that Perlmutter will be looking at ways to add amendments to safe banking and perhaps to help move this along and get it passed by the end of the year. Uh, I think this was an important discussion that they had yesterday, and I hope that the Senate takes notice that there are ways to help minorities without having to push an all-or-nothing bill. This is Gretchen for State of Campus News Hour. Pass safe banking. Fuck yeah, pass safe fucking banking. Yeah, and all the things that they discussed and the challenges that the um, minority and women-owned businesses face weren't exactly addressed. They discussed the challenges, they didn't point out how safe banking would actually help. So there's still a lot of, there's still a long way to go with safe banking. Right. And I, and my hope is from this discussion, seeing the problems that this will help Perlmutter and others um, who are weighing in on safe banking to come up with the amendments that will make Senator Schumer happy to bring it for a vote on the Senate floor. Hold on. Do you think anything is going to make Senator Schumer happy? I think the only thing that makes Senator Schumer happy is his face on a billboard in Times fucking square. Um, if we can get it with safe banking on that billboard with him, I think that'll get it done. The man loves uh, publicity. Billboards. So He's a shameless he can, self-promoter. If he can be the savior of safe banking and getting it done, I think he would do it. Um, the only way he's going to allow it or to come for a vote, uh, there have to be amendments to it. And I don't know. Perlmutter has no problem with amendments. So let's tack them on there and let's get this shit done. 
get this shit done. All right. Well, thank you so much for that headline, Gretchen, and everyone for your amazing opinions on this. Um, up next, we've got Shalina Panu, Law Offices of Shalina Panu, focusing on cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. The founder of Shall We Talk. What do you have today, Shalina? Thank you, Nicole. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Cannabis and Exercise Want to Take You to Space. Space, used in the context here, stands for the Study on Physical Activity and Cannabis Effects. It was founded by a graduate student named Laurel Gibson at the University of Colorado Boulder. Gibson created space to study the science behind why and if cannabis has a causal effect on exercise, particularly the effects of cannabis products sold in the legal retail market. Her goal is to find precise and factual data on the combination of cannabis and exercise. She is curious to figure out how the THC and CBD profile that are commonly used and easily available in legal cannabis products may play a role in the effects on exercising. Gibson is having experienced cannabis consumers come into the lab to give blood work and then run on a treadmill, first without using cannabis and then with. While exercising, she asks them questions about enjoyment, pain, time perception, and motivation. What she plans to achieve here is for consumers to receive data-driven facts so that they can make informed decisions towards using cannabis with exercise. Just a side note, she's still taking participants um, for this study, if anyone's interested. Um, I wrote on my blog about cannabis and exercise back in April of 2018, where there was some yet still very minimal studies done. In that blog post, a study found that cannabis potency actually increased during exercise, thus causing what is famously known as the runner's high. Secondly, it found that CBD played a major role in exercise as far as fighting inflammation and pain. Josiah Hesse, who is a marathon runner and one of the first participants in the space study, stated that he made the life change nearly 10 years ago to start running to help treat his depression and anxiety. He said he had such difficulty in the beginning of his running journey, just like most people do when they start any sort of cardio exercise. However, once he started incorporating cannabis into his exercise, you're roboting. You're roboting big time. No. I'll chime in on exercise and getting high. I have to tell you, over the past two years, I exercised high every day, lost 75 pounds, was more able to focus on my workout, go for long rides, get that nice runner's high that they were getting high and working out. Maybe it's Clubhouse. I don't know what's going on today. Um, shall we relight? Does anyone want to say anything about exercise and cannabis before we move on? Exercise and cannabis are both good. They are both good, and I can uh, exercise athlete for sure. I it's really important, especially as your body is stretching uh, the anti-inflammatory effects and then also the euphoria and anandamide is, is really important. So you're creating those endorphins. They marry very well together. Exercise and medicate. I prefer to do cardio with when I, when I exercise with my weed. I do lung exercises all the time. Oh, shit. Adam Ill wants to come yeah. up. Yeah, we got to hear from Adam Hill. Come on, Adam. Adam. What you got? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I do a thing on Twitch called Weed and Workouts every morning. I do for 100 days. I go for 100 minutes, and I get high with my audience, and then we work out together. And everyone loves it, and it makes me work out easier. I don't feel as much pain. I'm uh, I, My endurance and stamina is up. So, yes, Weed and Workouts, let's go. All right. Well, next time, uh, that's an ad. So, which, speaking of ads, let's go into our ad. At True Classic OG, we live by one motto, stay true. 
We stay true to our legacy cut of true OG that is always fresh, piney, gassy, and delicious. We represent the spirit, hustle, and diversity of our great city of Los Angeles. And we stay true to the plant, doing everything in-house to ensure that you get the highest quality and consistency with every batch. This is what has made us LA's favorite OG, or as I like to call it, the best weed in a jar since weed in a jar. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. A family raised with roots in Long Beach, a single mother building generational wealth, the first of its kind, changing lives and enhancing highs. Medicate High Luxury. Meet Canna Express. High luxury cannabis flower and concentrates. Available now at your local Catalyst dispensaries. If you missed the beginning of the show, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a killer review. Let's keep smoking the news. And up next, we have Mr. Christopher Smith, communication strategist and the publisher of the American Cannabis Report, and our very own Ron Burgundy. What do you have for us today? Good morning, Cole. Thank you for the nice intro. Good morning, Susan. Um, I have a, a pretty annoying and disturbing story today from the front line of the war on drugs, but I feel also very fortunate to have some help in telling what's been done to rectify this sorry situation. Uh, and that help will come from Mr. Stephen Post, who's here in the room today with us. Um, he's a campaign manager and communication strategist for the Last Prisoner Project, and he's very kindly taken some time to uh, to join us today. Come up. Uh, there he is. Hi, Stephen. Um, so I'll take the first swing at the story, if that's all right, and leave you plenty of space to fill in the blanks for us and uh, help bring us up to date on what you guys are working on. The, the headline for the story is from Ganjapreneur, gets to the heart of the matter. A man serving life in prison for $20 cannabis sale gets chance at freedom under new Louisiana law. So Kevin O'Brien Allen, a 39-year-old Louisiana man, is serving life in prison without parole after being arrested for selling $20 worth of cannabis to a police informant. And right out of the gate, you would not be shocked if I told you that Mr. Allen is black, would you? So when you hear the phrase unfairly targeted by the war on drugs, Mr. Allen's face should appear before you on September or December 27, 2012. And again, on March 13th, 2013, the Bossier Sheriff's Narcotics Task Force paid a confidential informant, informant to approach Allen and solicit marijuana. Mr. Allen provided the snitch with a grand total of $20 worth of weed. In 2014, he was sentenced to 10 years hard labor for each count. 20 years hard labor for $20 in weed. But the nightmare didn't stop there. State prosecutors ultimately pushed to enhance the punishment under Louisiana's habitual offender statutes, also known as three strikes. Thank you, California. Thank you, Bill Clinton. Thank you for prohibition for where it was applied to bootleggers. Also, uh, due to multiple past drug-related convictions, Allen's sentence was increased to life imprisonment without the chance of parole 
probation or sentence suspension for $20 a weed. So Stephen, I'm going to turn you over and I'm going to get out of the way here so that um, you can help us understand um, what he's been through and what your organization is, is doing to try to free him. Awesome. Thank you, Christopher. Uh, this is a great background, and Kevin Zalon's case is really a stark example of the injustices that still pervades our criminal justice system today. As you note, noted, his egregious sentence is really born out of some of the draconian habitual offender laws that Louisiana uh, still has uh, due to his prior judge charges and that sentence enhancement. Um, Mr. Kevin Allen's case is really like many other cannabis offenders, and it's really an utter travesty of justice. In my mind, the worst part of this case is the setup and that the confidential informant was actually a trusted childhood friend of Kevin's. I just couldn't ever imagine getting a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole, let alone for weed, but also having that being a result of a close friend betraying, betraying yourself. As you said, Kevin was found, by, found, by a, found guilty by a 11 to 1 split jury. Why that's so important is because today, the fact that that jury's verdict was split would require that the mistrial would happen under Louisiana law. Additionally, the Supreme Court has held that the conviction by non-unanimous jury is an unconstitutional denial of the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial. The court has commented on the Sixth Amendment's unanimity requirement no less than 13 times in more than 120 years, and most recently in Ramos versus Louisiana in 2019, where the court enforced, this, enforced the same requirement against Louisiana. And according to NOLA.com, the Ramos decision actually ended that practice that was adopted 120 years earlier, really with the aim of restoring white supremacy in the state. Currently, there's still over 100 or sorry, 1,500 folks in prison in, in Louisiana that were convicted due to split juries. And so four in five of those that had been convicted are black. And Louisiana's Supreme Court decision um, that is actually coming up could be required to possibly overturn any of those decisions and, and lead to mistrials. In addition to that avenue, um, fortunately, there is a new Louisiana law um, that provides an opportunity for the district attorney, um, Shuler Marvin uh, of Bossier Parish, to reduce Mr. Allen's sentence by working with him to come to a mutually agreed upon post-conviction plea agreement. In layman's terms, DA Marvin can release Kevin. So what we're doing here at The Last Prisoner Project is launching the Free Kevin Allen Advocacy Campaign to generate public pressure on DA Marvin to do just that. The more people who put pressure on DA Marvin to release Kevin from incarceration, the more likely he is to get free. We encourage you all to share information about Kevin's case with your networks and use your own social media to push DA Marvin to free Kevin Allen. You can find more information at lastprisonerproject.org forward slash free Kevin Allen. And that's all I got for you today, Christopher. Uh, thank you so much, Stephen. And thank you for taking the time to come on and help uh, clarify what you guys are working on. And I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that headline, Christopher and Stephen, for taking your time to help us with that. And everyone, uh, definitely follow the Last Prisoner Project and help us get this man free. Um, and up next, we're very excited for the debut of Mr. Elliot Lewis the State of Cannabis News. Founder and CEO of the multi-location cannabis retail brand Catalyst and the man who needs no megaphone to let everyone know that we need to get the weed to the people. What do you have? I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, the story I'm bringing uh, is, you know, kind of benign on its face, but uh, kind of wanted to give a little bit of behind the scenes and how these things 
you know, come to be. So uh, good news, L.A. County unincorporated, not to be confused with the cities or the incorporated area, is moving forward on a uh, cannabis uh, item. It looks like there'll be 25 retails, 25 deliveries, 10 cultivations, 10 manufacturings, and a distribution. One Hilda Solis will be the champion, uh, as they call it, of, of SID movement in L.A. County. Now, L.A. County uh, unincorporated, very diverse area, covers a very large uh, range of areas, tends to be a little bit more uh, conservative than cities uh, in the L.A. area that are incorporated. So um, that's the headline. The way these things happen, right, and, and it's kind of the fight against local control. So, you know, typically, uh, you know, I don't get behind the veil too much, but you know, obviously the initiative process is one way to get it done. And, and, and we've seen that. But in this instance, um, you know, uh, we were part of a coalition that took a poll, a uh, very expensive poll, I might add. Uh, they always like to throw in uh, the politicians some of their own political issues and then show them how strong uh, the issue is. So, uh, you know, polled really well. Uh, high 60s, and that's with uh, some undecided. So, you know, while I'm throwing uh, bombs at uh, political figures, I am always willing to uh, educate them on what their uh, voters want, and that kind of gives them the political cover uh, to move forward. You know, some interesting facts, uh, and by the way, first you have to find a majority, and then you have to find a champion, uh, somebody that's going to bring it forward. So uh, it took us a while to uh, find the champion in Sid Case. Some interesting things from the poll uh, that I think are, are, are were, were a little bit surprising. Um, you know, the two most popular items, and if you look at the uh, talking points in the article, you will see why they exist, are what are the good reasons to open cannabis, taxes, and enforcement of illegal dispensaries. Um, unfortunately, you know, there's this whole game of local control. You have to offer them the taxes in order to order for them to open up. And it's kind of a catch 22 because then at the end, uh, we all feel like we're being overtaxed. The other interesting part of this poll, and, you know, I don't want to get into all the data, but uh, a majority of people actually think it's legal in L.A. County. And we've seen this in a lot of polls where just, you know, we're in our own little echo chamber. We're in a bubble here. And uh, we all think, oh, yeah, people should know 70 percent of cities have illegal cannabis. Most average Joe citizens think that it's legal everywhere. So we saw a majority in this poll that thought it was uh, legal. By the way, safe access, less travel, all those things poll really low when you ask people reasons for uh, legalizing, which is frustrating. The one more kind of interesting uh, point uh, that was surprising. We pulled the word cannabis, which I thought was a great idea by the industry to rebrand, uh, you know, terrible names like pot and uh, marijuana and whatever you want to say. Not terrible, but uh, marijuana polls uh, in this particular instance, three points higher than cannabis. So I don't know if it's the elderly crowd or people that aren't familiar with it or they don't know what cannabis is. So uh, we found that as a, uh, a surprising outcome. But I, I, I do want to make the point on the story, which is this. Um, you know, it, it, education and if the political officials are sincere and they're a little bit afraid is a huge part of the process of getting these cities uh, pushed forward. And although local control is an unfortunate situation here in California, um, you know, the initiative writing process is one way. But the other way to go about it is educating them in polls that are expensive with a lot of data. And they also have non-cannabis data in there. So they kind of get a free roll on their approval ratings and other issues in their districts is, you know, kind of how these things come to be. So uh, without getting too deep into 
you know, every uh, last bit of how we did it. Oh, one last thing I'd like to add. Uh, there's three locals, uh, UFCW locals that cover that area, 770, 1428, and 324. Uh, we're all active uh, participants in kind of pushing this item forward. So the headline is L.A. County Unincorporated is going to get cannabis. But this is an item that has been worked on. Uh, for many months, there's polling behind it, there's education behind it, and there's a hard search for a, uh, uh, a champion on the issue, as well as support from UFCW and, and other industry people. So, uh, you know, that's the news. But behind the news, I think it's important for people to understand uh, how local control works and what we need to do to uh, uh, move it forward. Amazing. Thank you so much, Elliot, for that headline and your correspondence on that and your deep dive. We really appreciate all the insight on this kind of thing. So thank you so much and welcome to the team. Um, and up next, we have Miss Maggie Wilson. She's the first black female cannabis sommelier, author of the Metaphysical Cannabis Oracle Deck, debuting in the Hash Museum of Amsterdam in Spain this summer, and cannabis and wellness coordinator for live music and festivals, as well as the CMO at Fruit Slabs. Maggie. How do you even have time for us? What do you have today? <laughs> Thank you so much for that intro, Nicole. Um, never stop, never stopping is how I is how I have time today. <laughs> today, my story comes out of New York from Fox 43. It says New York plans to give $200 million to cannabis entrepreneurs of color. The ambitious plan still has several unanswered questions about where some of the funding will come from and how it will be dispersed. In an ambitious move to make its new marijuana ind industry equitable, New York is proposing a $200 million fund to help entrepreneurs of color and some other groups get into the business. But officials haven't yet nailed down some components that experts say are crucial to making the investment effective. Governor Kathy Hochul's proposal unveiled last month would be among the largest sums any state has committed to try to ensure diversity and social equity in the fast-growing legal pot business. The plan also is somewhat unusual for relying on money or private sources. In one recent policy document, the Democratic Governor Administration vowed to create, quote, the most diverse and inclusive marijuana industry in the nation. Uh, it also said New York will lead where many other states have fallen short. Uh, 200 million sounds great, says Amber Littlejohn, the executive director of the Minority Cannabis Business Association, but it's not really so much the amount as it is the timing of the funding and services. And if that comes after the point of uh, application, its ability to be impactful is really limited. New York's equity program could both grant uh, could both give grants and loans to eligible businesses, which would include these uh, those businesses owned by minorities and women, struggling farmers, disabled veterans, and people from communities that endured heavy pot policing. We quote: We want to make sure that these equity businesses have a chance to start the industry here, and the, and. We're very cognizant of the fact that they need these resources as early as possible from Chris Alexander, a lawmaker from the governor's office. So diversifying the marijuana industry and improving opportunities for people who bore the brunt of the decades-long U.S. war on drugs has become a priority in some states as pot legalization created a new multi-billion dollar industry of predominantly white proprietors, ex executives, and investors. Social equity efforts range from licensing priorities to trainings to loans, but progress has been slow in many states. Access to capital is absolutely one of the biggest barriers to entry and barriers to success for minorities and women in the cannabis in cannabis businesses, says Tahir Johnson, the social equity and inclusion director at the Marijuana Policy Project. Opening a marijuana business can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars or more. As pot is federally illegal, many banks are still unwilling to lend to sellers, growers, and processors, and they're ineligible for federal small business administration-backed loans. 
the state dormitory attorney, a construction agency, could help social equity businesses line up and build out locations, but they're still trying to, uh, quote from Alexander, we're still trying to identify all the things that people needed and things that they don't have in other states. So although I think that this is great, there definitely seems to be some things that still haven't been figured out, uh, but it is a big barrier of entry, but uh, I would love to hear what everyone has to say about this because it does seem like it's very interesting, but possibly has a lot of hurdles to still overcome. And this is Maggie reporting from the Denver International Airport for State of Cannabis. Oh, I love this story. I think New York is doing some great things. I think they're really breaking out of the box. Um, Massachusetts also had uh, training programs that it offer that it offers to um, impacted individuals, which helps them with businesses and other skills that are needed. So I think the combination of training and funds uh, could go somewhere. I don't know. Are you sure uh, Mayor Marion Barry isn't the mayor of New York right now? Oh, uh, I was just reading from that article, so I'm not sure if that was uh, a, mis- a mistype in the article, but it was from Fox, so probably. <laughs> Fake news. The Washington guy? That was Mary- great, Maggie. <laughs> you are Marion Barry, the Washington guy? The Washington DC? You are fake news. <laughs> That's what I'm, I, Jason, explain yourself. Or no, You're don't. Safe. Please don't. Oh, God. Don't let Jason explain himself. Let's get our next correspondent in. Thank you so much for that headline, Maggie, and thank you for taking time even though you're on the road. Um, and up next, we have Stone Slade. We've been missing you, Stone. TV's dope dad from A&E's Modern Dads, host and co-creator of the new show Hitting the High Road with Stone Slade and Sensi Mag. What do you have for us today? Hey, Nicole. Hello, everybody. Good to be back. Today, my story comes from the Denver Post. Uh, Alex Burness over at the Denver Post. In a great common sense move, a Colorado lawmaker wants the state to investigate how workplace drug policies affect and in some cases discriminate against cannabis users. A certain dilemma has piqued the interest of Representative Edie Hooten, a Democrat from Boulder, when it was brought to her attention that people who use cannabis to treat ailments like epilepsy, nausea, and arthritis are being discriminated at the jobs. You've got a huge group of people in Colorado choosing to use medical cannabis instead of pharmaceutical drugs, Hooten said, adding that there's a whole class of Coloradans who are excluded from employment simply because they use medical cannabis. Initially, this legislative session, Hooten had proposed a bill that would uh, protect employers, employees excuse me, from being denied employment or fired from an existing job for legal off-the-clock cannabis use, but is now scrapping that plan entirely and starting with a fresh bill that would force the state to overhaul its approach to marijuana in the workplace. Her new bill will recommend creating a task force that would rec- make recommendations to the state Department of Labor and Employment uh, for, to, for them to use as a basis for the new state law. Business lobbyists are expected to fight the policy, uh, any, anything that disempowers their employers. Hooten promised that that is not her aim. She's sympathetic, particularly to employers who have to hire people to operate heavy machinery. But the cannabis industry, on the other hand, generally agrees with her on this con- that this conversation is overdue. Uh, this bill is coming in 2022, a decade after legalization, and is yet another indication of how much homework Colorado uh, left itself when it created the legal cannabis industry before figuring out so many of the related details. Representative Hooten acknowledges that they are still dealing with a kind of reefer madness view of cannabis, and that too many people still have a view that if, if, you're, using, if you're using it, you're freaking stoned out of your mind and nodding out and can't function well. I got to say, man, you know, 
hurdles and hoops are the way of the walk in the cannabis industry. And as we're seeing, many legal markets are having to backtrack and fix what was overlooked or just impossible to get past at the time of legalization because of the narrow or greedy minds that run the, run the show. I wish Representative Hooten well in her fight and uh, hopeful, hopefully that the newly legal and not yet legal states are taking notes and will get more right from the beginning, but I won't hold my breath. I'm Stone Slade reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Yeah, don't hold your breath. I'm just going to hold in this hit. That's a good move. Although it doesn't get you any higher. That's like such a hippie response, though, when they're like. <laughs> it seems like this is on the horizon. I mean, they're all just talking about it with a lot of this um, workplace drug testing. So it's it's definitely become a hotter topic. It's rippling things. So I wonder if we'll actually see things moving forward before federal legalization or what do you guys Deschedule or bust. Deschedule or a bus, but I think with the Amazon move to stop testing its drivers in order to get drivers, I think has uh, moved the needle quite a bit. All right. Well, thank you so much for that headline, Stone. We have missed you and glad to have you back. Um, and up next, we have Anna Mead. If Captain Planet smoked weed, he would have asked Anna to stop hogging the bong. Coming to us all the way from Cape Cod, where she spends her winters writing books and her summers creating weed enterprises on the East Coast. The author of the book, The Big Sister's Guide to Cannabis, fighting for the underdog since day one. Perhaps that's why she likes weed so much. Anna, what do you have for us today? Thank you, Nicole, for that great introduction. My article comes out of Marijuana Moment from one of our favorites, Kyle Yeager. The Hawaii State Senate Committee approves bill to legalize marijuana for senior citizens 65 and older. A Hawaii Senate committee on Monday approved a bill to make it so people 65 and older can automatically qualify for medical marijuana, regardless of whether they have diagnosed conditions that would otherwise make them eligible. Critics at state agencies says this effectively amounts to legalizing recreational cannabis for older population without creating the broad regulated adult use market like the ones that exist in other states. The bill cleared this health, the Senate Health Committee with a unanimous 3 to 0, with two members absent from the boat. This action came days after the panel advanced separate legislation related to establishing a working group to study the therapeutic potential of psilocybin mushrooms. The text of the marijuana proposal, which was slightly amended by the panel prior to passage, was discussed a wide range of conditions like chronic pain that studies indicate cannabis can help treat. It states that medical marijuana has been demonstrated to positively help with these often reoccurring health issues, resulting in a better quality of life. The legislature further finds that such conditions have been broadly aspirated by the pandemic, economic instability, and increasing uncertainty in recent years. Accordingly, the purpose of this act is to make it easier for senior citizens to access the state's medical cannabis program. It would make the simple regulatory change to this state's existing program. Now only patients who, as having a disability medical condition by a doctor, qualify for the program. It would expand it to also include anyone who has reached the age of 65. Um, meanwhile, and uh, it also references the uh, mayor of D.C., the article we discussed yesterday, at the Hawaii meeting, the Health Commission chairman briefly addressed the amendments um, in written testimony submitted by the panel. There was some problems in the draft language, and there were some still some hurdles to overcome. Uh, but with these changes, um, they still have questions about it. So they put it on a docket, and they'll think about it um, for, for a little bit longer. But I wanted to see what uh, the rest of the uh, panel had to 
say about this uh, unique proposal from Hawaii? This is Anna with the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'm wondering if they do this, if there's going to be a surge in fake IDs. DC just did this too. Um, I want to say last week as well. And I think this is the absolute right thing to do. Um, at the end of the day, self-medication um, is super important. And I think as you get older, the opportunity and the ability to make whatever fucking decisions you want to make, um, I think are, are, be, are more needed. Um, and so I think, you know, being able to choose that this is a medicine for you at 65, I think that makes sense. I actually really like this. I really like this for, for seniors to be able to have the right to be able to choose what they want to consume and not have to feel like they'd have to go and see a doctor and get a note and go through all those extra steps because life's already hard enough when you're that age. Weed for all of the people. Come on. I'm going to jump into my story because I want to get it in before the end of the show. Um, the city officials in Woodland, California are worried about illicit cannabis and they're coming to a backyard near you if you live there. My story comes out of the Daily Democrat, and the headline is Woodland City Council Increases Fines for Illegal Cannabis by Gerardo Zavala. Currently, the city's cannabis ordinance allows for a cumulative total of six living plants at one time within a residence or detached structure. Any violation of this limit is declared a public nuisance, and violators faced negligible fines. There's a $100 fine for the first violation. 200 for the second one within a year and 500 for each additional violation. So a city staff report noted that the potential revenue from illegal cannabis cultivation far outweighs the fines, making illegal cultivation worthwhile. Mayor Myra Vega added her support for the ordinance amendments, noting that she has been contacted by residents who have dealt with illegal growth in their neighborhood and the effect of the quality of life that it had. Quote, I'm glad to see this come up and see that code enforcement is going to have support and something that will allow them to enforce and take action on illegal grows, Vega highlighted. The council voted unanimously to adopt the ordinance and to waive the first reading of it. So here are the changes if you live in Woodland. Citation penalties for every marijuana plant cultivated in violation of the ordinance will be $100 for the first plant, $200 for the second, $500 per plant for three or more plants, plus $1,000 per plant per day. The plant remains unabated past the abatement deadline set forth in the administrative citation. Any property upon which a violation is found will be subject to immediate abatement by the city. Any person found in violation will be charged with abatement cost and expenses calculated to recover the total cost incurred by enforcing the ordinance. Each day a person is in violation will be considered a separate violation. Wowza. This is crazy. And will it even help? Hopefully and it'll help bring the weed prices back up, Susan, by people having to pay all these fines. <laughs> All right. Well, we are at the top of the hour. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that came comb through the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. Big thank you to Nicole West and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eye and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. 
You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Show's over.